are still here, God bless the children as they go. Let's get our Bibles out this morning. How are you doing out there? You have a blessed Christmas? Amen. Jesus is the reason for the season. Let's get our Bibles out this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 is going to be our main text. Looking at the miracle where Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And it's an interesting miracle. Has a lot of moving parts. Has some theological discrepancies we're going to look at. And also uh, different emphases between the two places that it occurs. It occurs in Luke chapter 7, which is our main text. And it also uh, is chronicled in Matthew 8. And we're going to hear from both of those texts in just a moment, but let's thank God for the word this morning. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you that we can come together as brothers and sisters and worship you in this place. Holy Spirit, I thank you for moving during our worship, touching our hearts, drawing us into your presence this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask you to now soften our hearts that we've prepared in worship to receive your word. And as the word goes forth today, let it let it challenge us and stretch us and encourage us today so that we leave uh, just with a deeper appreciation, Jesus, of who you are in our lives and what it means to be a, a follower of yours. We ask all this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Well, Jesus heals the centurion's servant here. It's chronicled in two Gospels, Luke 7, which we're going to read in a moment, and then I'm going to read to you Matthew 8 and 5 through 13. Uh, I want you to pay attention to what is in both of these accounts because we're going to talk about some uh, of the things that are in Luke and some of the things are in Matthew and some of the things that seem to contradict a little bit. This is an important exercise for us to understand how the Scripture works and what's important about the Scripture uh, making its impact in our lives. So Luke 7, 1 through 10 says this. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now listen to Matthew's account in chapter 8, verses 13 through 14. And look for some different inclusions and exclusions here. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. 
For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. For I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus heard it. He marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And, he, and, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So as you hear those two accounts, you realize there's uh, some inclusions there. In Matthew, he's talking about the, you know, the last days and the kingdom and sons of the kingdom being cast out and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You got no weeping, no gnashing of teeth in Luke. But the main thing here is that Luke implies that you know, the centurion sent emissaries. He sent uh, people to represent him to Jesus, where Matthew is saying the centurion himself conversed with Jesus. Now, you might look at that and go, well, see, there it is. There's, you know, discrepancies in the scripture. And, you know, that's why the, the Bible is not trustworthy and it's full of errors and contradictions. Have you heard people say things like that? And the truth is this. The fact that there are discrepancies in each gospel account actually leads to, leads to the authenticity of scripture. Why? Because any eyewitness account is going to include some things and leave other things out. If you, 10 people see a car accident and you get a statement from 10 of them, I guarantee you this, you'll have 10 different statements. The blue car will have hit the red car. The red car will have smashed into the green car. You know, the, the, the driver's hair color was red. It was blue. It was purple. Every, everything's going to be wrong. And, you know, eyewitness accounts have variables in them. Why? Because people see and, and, and they, they observe different things. And I'm not saying that there's discrepancies and there's things that are wrong here in the sense where they're they're just making stuff up now understand something to the to the point of the miracle this has no bearing the fact is that jesus is about to remotely speak a word and heal somebody's servant and he's about to revel in the faith that this man has it doesn't matter if he sent his friends if he came himself most bible scholars agree it was both that he sent emissaries out to represent him and then at the end he came face to face with jesus and you know that may or may not be, but it's not important. What's important here, what makes a miracle a miracle is that this guy had faith and Jesus spoke and a man that was about to die is going to live. Someone say, amen. So there again, you know, what color robe did he have? I don't know. Does it matter? It doesn't matter. What matters is that a miracle is taking place here. So understand, you're going to come across these things in the gospel accounts and it just, you know, legitimizes the fact that these are eyewitnesses accounts People are going to notice different things. And the point is that this miracle takes place, and it's because of this man's faith. Now, Jesus enters Capernaum. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's encouraging people. He's preaching the word of God. And, and he enters into Capernaum, and right away, he's made aware of an urgent, desperate situation. Now, how many people, you know, you get up, you're having a nice day, you had your coffee, you got to where you're supposed to be, and you think, ah, it's going to be a good day. And then someone hits you with that urgent, desperate situation. All of a sudden, your calmness turns into chaos. Come on. Anybody experience things like Anybody leave the house lately? Anybody go to work? Anybody look like you've been there, right? So, yeah, this is life. Life happens like that. You know, it's, everything's going good. It's calm. Then all of a sudden, 
chaos. Jesus walks into Capernaum. There, these guys accost him. They're like, we, you know, we need your help. We need you to do a miracle. And, and, and here's what we need to tell you. So Jesus walks in and he's hit with this. Now, I want to say something here. Uh, how we react to the urgent, desperate situations we face in life usually depends on how close we are to those involved. Amen? If we're close to people, if we know the person involved in the situation and they're close to us, most of us will at least listen and we'll show empathy and then we'll offer our assistance. You know, you hear something, a calamity, someone's in the hospital. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, is there anything I can do? How many people find themselves saying that a lot? Is there anything I can do? Some of you don't do anything. You're just looking at me. Someone comes to you, yeah, well, I'm in the hospital, I'm in need, that's good, have a nice day. No, if we're close to them, we offer our assistance. But listen, if we're not close to them, and we don't have close proximity to the event, uh, we might listen, we might empathize, but we stop short of rolling our sleeves up and getting involved. We see on the news that there's a hurricane, there's a tornado, there's some disaster. And, you know, oh, we look at the footage and we empathize and we say a prayer. But we, we don't, you know, buy a ticket, get on a plane and go on the scene and, and, and offer our assistance. Why? Because we're far removed from the situation. I want you to notice something about Jesus. He never just dismisses, you know, people who come to him because, you know, I, I don't want to get involved or, you know, I'm busy or I got other things to do. He interjects himself into their crisis. And this is important for us because I want to say something again here this morning. You and I can't solve every problem that's out there. For those of you who try to solve every problem, fight every fright, get into every situation, argue with every person who's not smart, Come on. Tomorrow you can get on social media and find a whole bunch of not smart people to argue with. And you can waste your whole entire day. Some of you do. I've seen what you say out there. But we're not called to solve every problem, to fight every fight, to, to right every injustice in the world, to argue with every you know, person who's wrong. But we are called to be salt and light, and we should never forget that. You and I are called to be salt and light. That means we should interject the light into situations. We should, you know, have a savor, have some, a preserving nature that just, you know, tries to inject Jesus into people's messes. It's not our call as Christians to just, you know, keep our head down, to not get involved in anything, to just be like, I just want to mind my business. I don't want to get involved in your drama. I want you to notice something about Jesus. He didn't solve everyone's problem. He didn't heal every sick person he encountered. Do you realize sometimes Jesus walked past sick people to get to one particular one that had faith and to heal them? When you think of the pool of Bethesda there, he walked past all those sick people and interacted with one person. When he spoke to the rich young ruler, you know, here the rich young ruler says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, and the guy's sad about it because he didn't want to give his stuff away, so he walks away. And how many of us codependent, needy people, pleasers, want to run out there and go, oh, wait a minute, don't go. I got another offer for you. How about plan B? And Jesus just lets him walk away. Think about that for a second. If Jesus didn't solve every problem, heal every sick person, fight with every religious person, you know he could have argued with every Pharisee he went by. He knew the topics to push their buttons. Come on. But he didn't. 
He did what he saw his father doing. He did the will of God, and he was led by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to get that. The Holy Spirit led him. He, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to be salt and light. He came to die on the cross. But the Holy Spirit lead him to interject himself into people's crises at certain times. And you and I need to do the same thing, to let the Holy Spirit lead us. We should always have a question on our heart when we see a mess or a crisis or a dilemma. God, should I get involved? Holy Spirit, are you leading me? And if he says yes, we should roll up our sleeves and we should jump in and be the salt and light that God intended us to be. Someone say amen. So led by the Holy Spirit, Jesus interacts in this situation. They accost him with, uh, you know, an urgent, desperate situation here. Someone's dying. In verse 2 and 3, we see this miracle is requested by others on behalf of someone else. Listen to verses 2 and 3. And the centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die, so that when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come out and heal his servant. So the servant's about to die, but the guys whose servant it was doesn't go himself, according to Luke. He sends out some proxies to represent him, and they go on this other man's behalf. Now, I want you to see something here. The fact that there are other people petitioning Jesus to move miraculously in another man's life is a beautiful thing. And if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I would have never got involved in that, that's exactly what God doesn't want us to do. He wants to use us. You're the answer to somebody's prayer. Oh, I got enough problems myself. Yeah, but you know what? When we take our eyes off our problems and let the Holy Spirit help uh, use us to help others, sometimes our problems are solved by the time we come back to them because while we were out doing the Lord's work, the Lord was working on our behalf, Amen. Oh, my problems, my problems. Listen, if you make your problems your focus, they'll never get solved. The enemy will make sure of that. But here's this guy, and, you know, he's sick, and he's got, um, he's got somebody who loves him, and he sends people out. And it's a beautiful thing that we see here, and we need to see more of it in our generation. You know, we live in perhaps the most self-centered generation in history. And people have always been self-centered by human nature, but you know what's exasperated it for us? It's technology. It's our phones, it's our computers, it's our social media. You, we create these little empires for ourselves with our own friends and our own cloud and our own news feed and everything we want to see about. And then we put our posts up and we see who likes them. And we're caught in this little self-centered world that we've constructed. Don't look at me like that out there. Some of you look like, I don't even know what he's talking about. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Technology is a tool that can, you know, you know, get us more caught in that snare of being self-centered. And, you know, we live in this self-centered ge generation. And, you know, most people and even Christians, even believers, never bother to pray or intercede for anyone or anything other than themselves. You know, now... You say, Pastor, now you're going to talk about our prayer lives. You know, we just survived Christmas here. We got a lot of bills to pay. You know, we, we made it to church. Why don't you cut us a break? Sorry, can't do it. Um, <laughs> our prayer life can't be all about us. God bless me and bless mine and bless my finance and bless my health and bless, you know, my family. Us four, no more. Hallelujah, God bless us all. <laughs> no, our prayer life should be 
you know, more than just bless me. It's, it's got to be more than self-centered. We should intercede for others. A, a lot of what we do in our works, in our giving, in our prayer should, you know, be reaching out to the hurting around us to be salt and light. Now, we're called to care about others. I'm going to say it a couple times till you get it. We are called to care about others. I'll try over here on this side now. We are called to care about others. Uh, this side did good. Okay, so you say, well, how is that, Pastor? Listen to Philippians 2, 3, and 5. Do, not, do, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility, listen to this, brace yourselves now, church, brace yourselves. Consider others better than yourselves. Let's just take a minute and get our balance. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude or mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that was a brutal scripture, and we, you know, you, we took it good sitting down. But we're not just to always be self-centered and all about us and our concerns and our needs, but we should consider others better than ourselves. Wow. If there is one thing you, if God said you could take one thing out of the Bible, might be that first. So for the ladies, it would be Proverbs 31. Out, gone. It's a tough crowd this morning, Pastor Mike. So, you know, the Scripture instructs us to care about others, to serve others, to roll up our sleeves when the Holy Spirit prompts us to get involved, to not just merely look out for our own personal interests, but the interests of others. And, you know, if we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and when he prompts us to get involved, this is what's going to happen. We're going to start making eternal differences in people's lives and reaping eternal warts. Come on, do you want to make a difference today? Do you want to do more than just survive life? Do you want to do more than just stumble into heaven? Amen. I'm not here just to make it through. I'm here to make a difference. God didn't save me just so I wouldn't go to hell. He saved me and anointed me and filled me with the Holy Spirit so I can make a difference in somebody's life. And you too. So we're here to make eternal difference. We're here to reap eternal rewards. And we're here to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus was doing. Verse 3 tells us why the crisis ever made it to Jesus. Now listen to what it says here. It's important. Verse 3 of Luke 7 says, So when he heard about Jesus, say heard. This guy, this centurion, had heard about Jesus. Well, what do you think he heard? He heard about what Jesus was doing during his ministry. And you know what? Jesus, in his three years on earth, he was a whirlwind. He went from place to place, healing the sick, raising the dead, opening blind eyes, making the lame walk, cleansing the lepers, casting out demons. It's amazing you could be quiet through all of that. But he was doing the works of the kingdom, amen? And, you know, as he's doing this... You know, people are hearing about he's starting to get a reputation. And the centurion heard about him. So when Jesus comes to town, he knows exactly what he needs to do. You know, you and I need to be the mouthpiece of the kingdom of God. You and I need to tell people about what Jesus is doing. Amen. You and I need to have a testimony about what's going on in our own lives, in our own churches. Come on. In our own devo devotionals. Amen. In our own quiet time. Oh, come on, second service today. Uh, I'm going to have to come down here. You know, I, I know we can be weary and beat up. Pay attention, John. This is for you. Don't, 
man. You know, we get beat up and weary, and we think, man, I'm just trying to survive, right? But, you know, the minute we take our eyes off of us just trying to break through and realize that, that Christ is in me, and he's the hope of glory, amen? And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in me, that I'm the answer to somebody's prayer, amen? That when I get alone in the secret place and pray, and God speaks to me, it's not just for me, it's for other people. Then you're gonna walk into people and run into people, and all of a sudden, you got the word of the Lord for people, and you start sharing the gospel, man. You could be in the grocery store, and somebody drops something, you help them, and then you talk to them, and you tell them about Jesus, and the next thing you know, they got tears running down their cheeks, and you're having a revival in aisle seven. Come on, that's what the Christian life is about. Not this, let me keep my head down and, and I don't want to avoid, like, attract attention and maybe the devil won't notice me and I could just die and go to be with Jesus and get this over with. Come on, he's got more for us than that. Here he is and they heard about Jesus and you say, well, how's the world going to hear about Jesus? He's gonna, they're going to hear about Jesus through us. So start talking about what God's doing in your life and start talking about Jesus and start talking about Full Gospel Center and invite your friends. I promise I won't embarrass you if you bring them. I'll, I'll, Esther, I brought some friends today. Be on your best behavior. Take your medication and just stick to the text. We'll get through this. Just bring them. Trust God. But they heard about Jesus, and they come to Jesus. According to Luke, the centurion sends his friends to petition Jesus about his dying servant. Now, I want you to see who's friends, who were friends with the centurion. And just say the word friends with me. One, two, three. Friends are important. The centurion's friends, according to verse 3, were elders in the Jewish community. Look at that. When he had heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come heal his servant. So, you know, if you think it's a little bit strange that this pagan Roman military commander has friends who are Jewish elders who are willing to go on his behalf, then you would be right to think that's a little bit interesting. Because basically the Romans were, you know, kind of just controlling the Jewish people there. They kind of had them under their thumb, and it was kind of like they were occupying the, the territory there, and they were their overseers. They were like Egypt over the Israelites. Yet here are these Jewish elders. Now, they're not just Jewish people or Jewish workers. Or they're elders. They're, 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 they're significant people in the Jewish community. They, they have spiritual knowledge. They have clout in the community. And they are friends with this Roman centurion, and they're willing to go on his behalf to do his bidding. Now, if that doesn't you know, pique some interest in you, then you need to read the, the text a little more carefully because this is a strange situation here. The fact that this guy had a bunch of friends who were elders and who were Jewish, and he's a Gentile military commander, should speak volumes on behalf of his character. Who your friends are say a lot about you. You know, if you thought you had a hard time thus far in the message, you better buckle your seatbelt now, because now we're going to start talking about our friends and the people we surround ourselves with. And the truth is that when we got through this in first service, I'm sure some people thought, there are some people that I need to schedule the exit out of my life, and there are other people I need to begin to seek out, amen? So get ready to stretch here, because we're talking about friends. Our friends say a lot about us. Whether we know it or not, or can admit it or not, 
the friends we surround ourselves with will have a huge impact on the trajectory and the productivity of our lives. Do you want to be happy? Surround yourself with happy people. Do you want to be successful? Get around people who've succeeded. Do you want to be healthy, fit, and eat well? Get around people who do that, amen? Do you want to be confident and resourceful in life? Surround yourself with confident people. Surround yourself with resourceful people. Do you want to be spiritually passionate, relevant, spiritually attractive, productive, and fulfilled? Surround yourself with those kind of people. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know where to find those people. Well, pray, and the Lord will bring them to you. Amen? Because who we surround ourselves with has a great impact on our lives. Now, the Bible warns us to choose our friends wisely. Here's what Scripture says. I'm going to give you three Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Let me read that again. Do not be deceived. What? Bad company corrupts good morals. What does that mean? If you surround yourself with people who are ungodly and who are doing ungodly things, eventually, if you stay with them long enough, they are going to rub off on you and you're going to do the same things that they do. You got to get this today because this is going to help you schedule the exit of some people in your lives. If you're sitting around with people and they don't serve God and they don't believe in God and they don't go to church and they're filling their body with garbage and chemicals and drugs and drunkenness and revelry and all that stuff and you think, well, I'm just going to be their Christian friend. No, they're going to pull you down into the mess with them and they're going to dull the edge of your life and they're going to put a lid on your ability to succeed in the things of God. Wow. So here we are and... We're talking about friends here today, and we're looking at some scriptures, and the Proverbs have two powerful ones. Listen to this, Proverbs 14, 7. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Now, that was a very flowery way to say, if someone's a knucklehead, stop hanging out with them. I mean, look how beautiful it says this here. I mean, <laughs> go from the presence of a foolish man, knucklehead, when you do not perceive his lips knowledge. So he's a dummy. He's saying foolish things. And you know, come on. Oh, well, Pastor Rick, don't call anybody dummy. The Bible calls people fools. I'm not, I'm just saying. Some people, when they talk, you're like, man, what in the world? And you know the stuff that they're saying. And sometimes they're really funny. You ever been around a funny dummy? That's a, that's a hard person to get away from because, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I need a laugh, right? And they're funny. And I'm like, this guy's hilarious. And I'm listening to him. Everything you're saying is wrong, but you're hilarious. Now, I'm not saying you can't be friends with people like that. I'm not saying you can't love people like that. But I'm saying if you allow them to be so close to your life that they're your core group, they're going to they're gonna influence you. You're going to start talking like them. You're going to start saying the words that they say, the phrases they say, the pr their favorite profanity. You're going to start saying it. I'm just getting real in church on Sunday. Listen to Proverbs 13, 20. So stay away from dummies. Proverbs 13, 20. One who walks with wise people will be wise. Look at that. But a companion of fools will suffer harm. So the people we put around ourselves are going to rub off on us. That's what the scripture is telling us. So choose your friends wisely. American entrepreneur, 
author and motivational speaker Jim Rohn says this, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I found a lot of truth in this. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. It doesn't say you glean the best qualities from the five people that you spend time with. It says you're the average. So you kind of chew it all up and swallow it and ingest it, and you become the average of the five people you've allowed to be closest to your life. Now, Jim says this, that we should ask ourselves four questions about these five people. Number one, do they exhibit qualities that we admire? Number two, are they productive go-getters or excuse-making complainers? Oh, the rubber just hit the road. You know that friend that's always complaining and always failing and always getting fired and it's, the, you know, this person and there, the man's holding me down and all this stuff and just excuses. Number three, do they lift you up mentally, emotionally, and spiritually or do they drag you down? You know, it's easy for us to really answer this question if we'll just be honest. Because when you get around some people, you know, uh, they, they dull your edge. They drag you down. They, they bring you down to their level. And you, you got to say, is, is that a, a level where I want to live? Number four, do they inspire you to excel? You and I need to be surrounded with people who inspire us. As a pastor, I don't want to be around complainers. I don't want to be around people who tell me 80 ways you can't do it. I don't want to be around excuse makers. Hello this morning. Amen. I don't want to be around you. Yeah, I like you. Have a cup of coffee. Now get away from me because I want to be around people who have faith and believe God and trust him to do big things and believe the word of God. I want to be around people who pray, not just complain. I want to be around people who have vision, not just say, you know, we just can't do it. We're just going to sit here and shrivel away till Jesus comes back. No, I don't want to be around that. And neither should you. You want to be spiritually relevant? You want to be spiritually attractive? Get around Christians like that. You know, we're supposed to be attractive to the world. The gospel is the good news. It's not, it's not hornet repellent. You know, some of us preach the gospel like, People are like, Jesus loves you. The gospel's good news. You and I, we need to be spiritually attractive and relevant. We just say, how do we do that? We get around people who are. Our friends are important. We are the average of the five people we've allowed to be closest to us. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to take a look at that seriously and recalibrate some things, amen? There's some friends we got to wave goodbye to and make room. And I'm not saying you can't be friends, or you can't love them, you can't pray for them, you can't bring them to church. It's just that when you let them in your core, they're going to affect who you are. And they're going to put a lid on your potential. And that's a serious thing. A fake friend will reveal themselves in crisis. This guy had some real friends that were willing to step up with him. But you know, if we've chosen uh, poor friendships, we've surrounded ourselves with people who are just, you know, all out for themselves, a fake friend will reveal themselves most quickly in the time of crisis. How many of you had close friends and then something went wrong and no one was there to be found, amen? When I was building a house, one of my friends to me, I, I'm, I'm working, I needed help. I'm like, where are all my friends? He said, when you build a house, you don't have any friends. <laughs> he was right. You know, you'd call him up, where are you? Oh, I'm busy. I got to water my cactus. I got to wash my hair today. I'm busy. Some of you guys get that. 
But fake friends reveal themselves as soon as crisis comes. Fake friend is like your shadow. As long as you're in the light, they're close to you. But the minute you're in the shadow, they're long gone. Some of us walk into the shadows in life and our friends disappear. Proverbs 25, 19 says this. Listen to what Proverbs says, so powerful. Confidence in an unfaithful man in times of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. That's graphic, isn't it? Let me read it to you again. This time be awake when I read it. Listen to this. Confidence, is, confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble. That's crisis. Listen, it's like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. Man, if you've ever broken a tooth and the pain and the nerves, and it's, it's ah, it just makes everything worse. If you've ever had a, a foot out of joint, you know, and now you're, there's, a, there's, a hitch, there's a hitch in your giddy app, you know, that God is saying that's, they're going to slow you down. Choose your friends wisely. Be careful who you surround yourself with because when crisis comes, when the shadow comes, when trouble comes, they're going to be either a hindrance to you or they're going to be nowhere to be found. Now, verse 4 and 5 is what I'm going to finish up with today. Uh, It fleshes out just how strongly these Jewish elders felt about this Roman centurion. Listen to verse 4 and 5 here. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. So I want to just stop right there, four and five. We're going to cover uh, three testimonies about this centurion's character. I'm going to do it quickly. Anytime a preacher says three, you're thinking another 45 minutes, maybe an hour. But no, just very quickly, these guys come on his behalf. They're willing to stand up for him. They are his friends his real friends, because they're sticking with him in a time of crisis. And they have three testimonies about this man's character. How many know character matters? You could fast talk your way into a situation. You could get yourself in a position. You could fool people for a little while. But if you have bad character, eventually it will catch up on you. You see, talent will only take you so far. But you don't understand, Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm really talented. Yeah, but character is the only thing that will allow your talent to produce fruit. There are multiplied millions of talented people on on the byways of life, shipwrecked. Why? They don't produce anything. Why? Because they didn't have the character to couple with their talent to produce something eternal. I know that was a mouthful. Get the CD, the tape, however you want to listen to it. Listen to a seashell. It might be in there. I don't know. But three testimonies about the centurion's character. Number one, They said this, this man deserves what he's asking for. Did you hear what they said? They're asking for a miracle, and they come to Jesus, and and they say, you know, and they came to Jesus and begged him earnestly. So there's passion in there. And listen, saying that the one uh, for whom he should do this is deserving. So they're basically saying, Jesus, do this for this guy. He deserves a miracle. That's quite a testimony, isn't it? Now, let me just clear the air here because a lot of you look real serious now and you're leaning forward on your chairs. Nobody deserves a miracle. Now some of you look disappointed. But nobody deserves a miracle, Tom. You know why? Because miracles are totally a work of grace. And grace is unmerited favor, which means we can't deserve it, amen? So these guys are making a passionate plea here. And it's admirable, but theologically, it's wrong. And I want you to know that we should never come before God and say, God, I deserve a miracle. You know, look at all, I prayed this many days in a row. I didn't miss. 
Uh, one day I overslept. I only got half. But, you know, you see the chart, Jesus. And I go to church. I have good, here's my attendance record at church. My baptismal certificate signed by Pastor Rick. You know, when people bring a resume to God and, 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 and demand that he does something for them, that, that's just the wrong heart. None of us deserve a miracle, but by God's grace, we can believe for a miracle, amen? Uh, we should never come with that attitude. But yet all of us know people, you know, really spiritual people, holy people that you would think, man, if God's going to do a miracle for anybody, he'd do it for them. You know, some evangelists like, you know, Billy Graham, you know, if he needs a miracle, surely God's going to do a miracle for Billy Graham, right? Maybe not, I don't know. But miracles are totally a work of grace, so we never demand a miracle. But these guys think enough of this pagan Roman soldier to say he deserves what he's asking for. That is an incredible testimony. You know, that's when you've lived a life that, you know, is so exemplary that other people can see enough God in you to say, you know, yeah, if you're going to do it for anybody, Lord, you're going to do it for this guy. Mark Twain said we should live so well that we could give our parrot to the town gossip and not be afraid. Think about that. You living like that? Amen. Are we living like that? Well, we got to close the window so the neighbors don't hear. So the first part of their testimony is this guy deserves it. And, you know, miracles are a work of grace, but that's a great testimony of this man's character. Number two, the second testimony from these Jews about this Roman's character is this. This man has a heart for our people. Listen to what it says. For he loves our nation. So not only is he worthy of this, and if you're going to do it for anybody, Jesus, do it for him, but he loves our nation. Now, according to the Abrahamic covenant, this centurion had absolutely positioned himself for the blessing of God to visit his life. Because according to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, he was surely a candidate for God to touch his life. Listen to what Genesis 12, 2 and 3 says. And I will make you, God speaking to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Listen to verse three. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant was made to Abraham. God has kept every part of it. He made a great nation through him. Israel is a great nation. They are the apple of God's eye. He blesses them. He watches over them. He has not quit on them. He has not thrown them away. The church has not replaced them. They are still the apple of his eye. The Abrahamic covenant is still in full effect. When, when nations are anti-Semitic and they hate the Jews and they persecute the Jews, you will see the judgment of God visit those nations. If you don't see it, you're either spiritually blind or you're not being intellectually honest. If you look at the nations that oppose Israel and part of their charter have, we're going to destroy Israel, we're going to take their land, we're going to drive them into the sea, those nations meet the most resistance from God. You say, why is that? Because the Abrahamic covenant is still in full effect. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Anti-Semitism gives way to an antichrist spirit, and it's not of God, and it doesn't bring the blessing of God to anyone's life. If you're a Christian, you need to love the Jews and support the Jews and pray for the peace of Jerusalem and love Israel, amen? 
So here's this guy, and he's a Roman, and he's a pagan, and these Jewish guys are saying, he's a great guy. You should do this for him. He loves our nation. So what, the way he's living, according to the Abrahamic covenant, positions himself for the blessing of God. I will bless this centurion because he's blessed you. Now, the third testimony about his character is how this man blessed the children of Israel at that time from his position. It shows here that, you know, not only was he a good guy and deserving in their estimation that he loved the nation of Israel, but, you know, check this out. It says, and he has built us a synagogue. Did you catch that? Let me read it to you again just to make sure you're getting the full scope here. It says, and when they came to Jesus and begged him earnestly, saying that this one for whom he should do this was deserving. Listen, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. A Roman centurion, through his own influence, his own efforts, his own finances, builds a synagogue for the Jews to worship in in an occupied territory that he's the overseer of. Wow. Man, you got to say wow to that. You might even want to say it backwards. Wow. Wow. This guy's supposed to be, you know, ruling over us, yet he's been so good to us. He's been so kind. He's actually built us a place to worship. Now, what they're testifying to is this guy is not only a lover of our people, but he's generous. Generosity tells you almost everything you need to know about a person. When a person is generous and they're, you know, they're givers and they're not looking for the limelight, but they care about the needs of others and they sacrifice their time and their talent and their money, that tells you a lot about their character. There are a lot of people that say they're generous, but they're really not. In fact, Pastor Mike and I were talking, uh, you know, we talked during the message uh, first service and we were saying there are some people we know that used to go around saying, I'm a giver, I'm generous. They would say that. And we were like, you're proud. You're ridiculous. No, I'm a giver. And when you got close to them and got involved with them, you found out that they were not givers. In fact, any stick that you shared with them, you got the short end of. I'm serious. So, you know, people who have to tell you they're a giver, that's a bad sign. I'm generous. I'm a giver. I'm a generous person. Okay, buddy. Let another man's lips praise you and not your own. Amen? These guys are praising this guy. The centurion didn't come for Jesus and say, I'm a good guy, I deserve a miracle, I love your people, I built a... No. Another man's lips praised him. And they testified of his character, that he was generous. And generosity tells you a lot about the character of a person. Henry Ford, the automaker was vacationing in Ireland when he was asked to contribute to a new orphanage in Ireland. Ford, without blinking, sat down and wrote a check for 2,000 pounds, which made the headlines in the local paper. But the paper inadvertently reported that Ford had given 20,000 pounds. So the director of the orphanage apologized for Ford. He said, I'll phone the editor straight away and tell him to make the correction. And Ford said, no need for that. And he sat down and wrote a check out for the other 18,000 pounds. Generosity. Wasn't looking for notoriety, wasn't looking for a newspaper article, didn't want any of that, just wanted to give to a need. 
Generous people don't have to tell you they're generous. It's just what they do. And when someone's generous, that really exemplifies the character of Christ. This guy was generous. He was generous to God's people. He built them a place to worship. He showed a character that showed he was loving for the nation of Israel. And by these Jewish elders' estimation, if anybody deserved a miracle, Jesus, it's this guy. What a great testimony about this centurion's character. And I want to close with this. Character matters in life. Our world says cheat, lie, steal, blur the lines, push the envelope, take what you can get. When nobody's looking, do whatever you want. But I want to tell you this. God in heaven is watching, and he will not be mocked. Whatsoever we sow, we will reap. Character matters. This guy had character, and in crisis, he had friends around him that made a difference in his situation, and they had gone to Jesus and on his behalf had asked for a miracle that he required at this time, and Jesus was on the scene because he had good friends and good character. Let's bow our heads today. I want to encourage you today, if you're hanging around people that are going nowhere, they are taking you with them. If you're hanging around people who are spiritually bankrupt and that's your inner core of friends and you're the most spiritual one in the group, they're going to drag you down. Father, I pray that each of us would take an inventory of the five closest people in our lives and that we would make adjustments where necessary. Holy Spirit, lead us. Close doors and open doors. Remove people who are anchors and counterproductive and bring to our lives people who will cause us to excel in the things of God. Bring us people who will uh, provoke us to godliness and bring us iron that will sharpen the iron you put in us. Father, I pray for that core of friends, that we would evaluate them, that we would make adjustments so that we could be everything you intended us to be and there would be no lid over our lives. Help us to realize our character matters that we're not getting any, away with anything because people didn't see, but you see, and you reward us accordingly. So help us to be good and kind and loving and generous and allow us to reap the fruit of good character in a time of crisis. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Give him praise this morning.